0: This is Spacetime Series 25, Episode 61, for broadcast on the 5th of June 2022. Coming up on Spacetime, a successful test for Gilmore's new Phoenix rocket engine, why the ice giants Uranus and Neptune are coloured differently, and a mysterious new type of magnetic wave discovered on the surface of Earth's core. All that and more coming up on Spacetime Yumo Space Technologies says everything's still on track to undertake an orbital test flight of its Ares rocket from Queensland's Bowen spaceport before the end of this year. The confirmation follows a successful full-mission-duration test firing of its new Phoenix liquid fueled rocket engine. The 3D-printed Phoenix engine will be used to power the third stage of the company's Ares rocket. The engine uses regenerative cooling. That's a configuration in which the cryogenic liquids are passed through tubes, channels or a jacket around the combustion nozzle in order to cool the engine. The 192nd Phoenix Burn followed a series of earlier successful tests with a series hybrid rocket engine which will power the Ares first and second stages. The most recent 75-second series test firing achieved 110 kilonewtons, that's 25,000 pounds of thrust. The company's CEO, Adam Gilmore, says the third-stage Phoenix engine will provide the extra performance needed to deliver substantially more payload to orbit. He says liquid-fueled rocket engines are used by most rocket companies around the world and are notoriously complex and expensive to develop. With this latest test, Gilmore Space has demonstrated sovereign capability with not one, but two very different rocket engine designs. Gilmore says the team's done exceptionally well to be able to design, build and test this new engine in just over a year, while at the same time also scaling up the main rocket engine, and of course building out the rest of the launch vehicle and pushing to develop a new orbital launch facility in Australia. The company recently won a contract to build and launch a new Australian Defence Surveillance and Intelligence Gathering satellite. Gilmore Space Technologies Program Manager David Doyle says the Ares test marks an important milestone in the development of a sovereign space program.
2: As you mentioned, yeah, the the third stage engine, which is a a liquid oxygen and kerosene or liquid biopropellant rocket engine as we call it in the business yeah we just did a full duration or mission duty cycle test of that upper stage that stage engine which was incredibly successful so as mentioned you know it ran for mission uh, mission duration and uh, everything was nominal so very very excited very happy and it's a great achievement specifically by our propulsion team to reach this point in such a short amount of time
0: now it's not the only engine you've developed there's the hybrid rocket engine as well, that'll be powering what, the first and second stages.
2: Yeah, exactly. So our AERIS launch vehicle which is the first of our launch vehicle product that we have in the company, a small lift launch vehicle that a is three stage rocket. As you pointed out, the first and second stage will be powered by hybrid propulsion technology which is a liquid oxidizer and a solid fuel as propellants and then the third stage will have a single Kerlox fire propellant uh, rocket engine which is what we just tested.
0: And the reason for the, uh, the different types of fuels is the third stage needs to be able to turn off and on. Uh,
2: that's one of the reasons. Uh, so for accurate orbital insertion for satellite payloads, it's very useful to be able to phase the orbits and separate out uh, multiple payloads for deployment. Um, so that is one of the requirements for that upper stage engine. But for a liquid engine over a hybrid or or a solid engine, it is a liquid is much more efficient. So to get to the extremely high velocities that we need to get to for an orbital launch vehicle, which really sets us apart from suborbital sounding rockets, that high velocity is best achieved through a very efficient upper stage engine. And so we made the switch to a liquid Kerlox engine, which does give us really high efficiencies. And that's why first and second stage can be a hybrid because we really need that oomph to get out of the Earth's gravity well and to get out of the atmosphere to minimise drag, and so we can afford to use a slightly less efficient propulsion technology like hybrid, which is high-thrust, but then also very low-cost and quick to manufacture, which is why we went that pathway on the first and second stage.
0: Tell us about the rocket itself, the launch vehicle.
2: In terms of an overview, Paris is a three-stage rocket, which, as we mentioned, roughly 23 metres tall, so pretty tall, and two metres in diameter for the first stage, tapering to one and a half metres in diameter across the second and third stages as well. In terms of development, pretty much everything has been designed, developed, and a lot of it is being manufactured by Gilmore Space Technologies in-house. Um, we have an extraordinarily large supplier network here in Australia. With a lot of companies, who have never worked in the space industry before, and the Really want to, to tool up and, and get involved. And so we've worked very closely with them over a number of years to be able to get to this point and bring them on the journey. We also have a few international suppliers that we work with mainly in Europe and the UK as well. We bring all those together and the work we do in, in-house to be able to design and, and manufacture the CRS vehicle. In terms of progress, where we're at at the moment with these recent tests, we're beginning to close out the, the final subsystems, so sections of the, of the different air propulsion systems, structures, airframes, mechanisms, avionics, software, doing all of our final tests in the lead up to final assembly and integration and what we will call a stage or vehicle level testing to occur later on this year. So we're across those final tests nearing the point that we'll transition to testing out at our launch site in Northern Queensland towards the end of this year.
0: Now, the original plan was to launch your first orbital payloads this year. Is that still likely to happen?
2: Well, I'd say uh, we're still on track to be able to achieve that. There's obviously a number of (laughs) factors that go into it. Extraordinarily complex and difficult, both technically and in other areas in terms of regulations. There's a lot of new things that the industry, government, state, and federal governments have to sort of work through for the first time, as well as us on the technical side. Then there's a lot of factors at play here that could potentially influence that and push that into 2023. At this point, we're still on track to be able to achieve our aim and vision of getting away an orbital attempt this year. But like I said, there's a lot of different variables here in this equation. So let's cross our fingers and hopefully Australia can get to to orbit this year.
0: What sort of payloads are you expecting to launch?
2: We have our first design variant of the AERIS launch vehicle, Block 1 as we call it. We've also got a a second major design variant in the works at the moment, Block 2. The Block 1 variant, which will be launching this year and, and next year as well, carries in the order of 100 to 150 kilos to low Earth orbit. The Block 2 variant, which will be online in the next few years, will be able to take up to a a thousand kilos to low Earth orbit, so quite a substantial upgrade in terms of the capabilities. But we're still targeting that smaller sub 1,000 kilo class satellite, which is where we see the majority of the market demand early in this decade, certainly. And we're seeing a lot of interest domestically and internationally as well with satellite customers.
0: And Bowen's still the location of the preferred launch site at this stage?
2: It is, it is, yeah. And things have been progressing extremely well for us up there. So I think the last time we uh, we touched base and spoke. We were early stages and looking at mainly regulatory approvals and we hadn't progressed with um, civil construction. So at this point in time, we started the civil construction process out on the, the launch site and that's been progressing uh, very, very well. Working with a, a range of local companies up and in, in the area to support us in that activity. And we are definitely on track to be able to have an operational launch site this year, which is really exciting both for us. But, uh, also for the the region, who have been really, really supportive and really excited to see this type of industry come to their their locales. Uh, But no, things are progressing really well and very happy with that. But again, (laughs) I'll always caveat with There's a lot of variables here. There's a lot of uh, hurdles that are yet to be navigated. And a lot of these challenges and hurdles are the first of type of not only Gilmore space, but but also for local, state and federal governments as well. So yeah, got a bit of progress to be made there. But things are, things are moving along very well. What
0: does it take to build a, a rocket launch pad? What's, what's involved there? There are all sorts of components, I guess, from a hard stand through to launch towers and vehicle assembly buildings and fuel storage. And what's all that involved?
2: It, well, you've got most of the constituent components there. Maybe you know more. The launch site is really made up of, as you mentioned, a launch pad, concrete hard stand, not too dissimilar with the sort of thing you'd see at an airport or an airfield. they towers that interface with the the rocket. So they, the, the um, transporter erector, which moves the, the rocket out to the, the actual pad, puts it into the vertical, and then bases with the rocket for so umbilicals for you know all of the propellants, the power systems, data systems, and so on and so forth. We have fluid storage area adjacent to the launch pad, which houses all of the, the propellants, the, the gases for the um for the rocket, um, water uh, for the water deluge system for sound suppression and, and other reasons. Uh, and then not too far from the pad, we have our vehicle assembly building, which is basically a, a big shed which houses and protects the rocket and rocket parts Also well as provide the space for people to, to work on the rocket out of the elements and um, for the payload to arrive, be processed by the payload customer and, and ready for integration into the, the top of the rocket in the horizontal. that all get done in the vehicle assembly building before being rolled out to the tower. And then there's all of the, uh, the associated control and uh, management and uh, oversight um, functions that are contained within the, the launch control center, which is basically comprised of theatre style setup for execution of operations on the launch site so that includes all of the commissioning testing and pre-launch operations the launch operation monitoring of the vehicle and ground systems uh, post-launch as the vehicle stages and moves up towards orbit and then all of the the functions associated with delivering a safe and effective range so that's interfacing with air services Australia, Queensland Police, federal agencies like the Space Agency, AMSA and um, a myriad of other organizations and external stakeholders within the local and broader community and even international community that go together to, to deliver a successful and safe launch. With that, we also have responsibilities to maintain security in the site as part of general operations, but then also during launch activities as well. So there's all of the infrastructure associated with that that go around and wrap and secure the launch control vehicle center we building a pad and other functions on the site. And then you've got other things like um, communication, so um, telemetry ground receive stations that are co-located and, and connect into communications infrastructure and, and those sort of the backbone elements.
0: Space is hard. It's difficult.
2: Yeah, it is. It is extremely. There is a uh, James Gilmore, our, um, our, our launch site lead here and, and co-founder, loves to say there's a lot of wood to chop. So I think that's a, that's a perfect way to put it across the board. There is a lot of wood to chop, but you know, I think there's some technical challenges that we've navigated and overcome. And there's still some regulatory, uh, not challenges, but just effort that needs to, to be undertaken by all parties. But I think there's largely known, known and understood effort. And it's just what we need to get through and move through. So it's certainly exciting. And, and we're very much getting down to, I guess, the final thrust towards to getting out to the launch site and rolling out a fully assembled integrated launch vehicle for a launch attack later this year
0: that's david doyle program manager with gilmore space technologies and this is space time still to come why the ice giants uranus and neptune are colored differently and the discovery of a mysterious new type of magnetic wave running along the surface of the earth's outer core all that and more still to come on space time Astronomers think they've finally worked out why the solar system's two ice giants, Uranus and Neptune, have different colours. Neptune and Uranus have much in common. They have similar masses, they're similar in size, and they're similar in atmospheric composition. Yet their appearances are notably different. At visible wavelengths, Neptune is a distinctively raw blue colour, whereas Uranus is a pale shade of cyan. Now, a report in the Journal of Geophysical Research Planets suggests there's a layer of concentrated haze which exists on both planets that's thicker on Uranus than a similar layer on Neptune and therefore whitens Uranus' appearance more than Neptune. The findings show that this excess haze on Uranus builds up in the planet's stagnant sluggish atmosphere and therefore makes it appear a lighter tone compared to Neptune's deep royal blue. If there were no haze in the atmospheres of Neptune or Uranus, both would appear equally blue. The new findings are based on the model developed to describe aerosol layers in the atmospheres of the two ice giants. On Neptune and Uranus, particles produced by sunlight interact with elements in the atmosphere. These photochemical reactions are responsible for aerosol hazes. Previous studies of these planets' upper atmospheres had focused on the appearance of the atmosphere at only specific wavelengths. However, this new model looks at multiple atmospheric layers, and it matches observations of both planets across a wide range of wavelengths. The new models also include haze particles within deeper layers that had previously been thought to contain only clouds of methane or hydrogen sulfide ices. The study's lead author Patrick Irwin from Oxford University says it's the first model to simultaneously fit observations of reflected sunlight from ultraviolet right through to near-infrared wavelengths. It's also the first to explain the difference in visible colour between Uranus and Neptune. The model consists of three layers of aerosol at different altitudes. The deepest layer, referred to in the paper as aerosol 1, is thick and is composed of a mixture of hydrogen sulfide ice and particles produced by the interaction of the planet's atmospheres with sunlight. At the other end, the top or aerosol 3 layer is an extended layer of haze, similar to the middle layer but far more tenuous. Now on Neptune, large methane ice particles also form above this layer. But the key layer which affects the colours is the middle layer, the aerosol-2 layer. This is the layer of haze particles, which are thicker on Uranus than on Neptune. The authors suspect that on both planets, methane ice condenses onto the particles in this layer, pulling them deeper into the atmosphere in a shower of methane snow. But because Neptune has a more active turbulent atmosphere than Uranus, Owen and colleagues believe Neptune's atmosphere is more efficient at churning up methane particles into the haze layer and producing the snow. This therefore removes a lot of the haze and keeps Neptune's haze layer thinner than that on Uranus, meaning the blue colour on Neptune looks stronger. To develop this model, Irwin's team analysed a set of observations of planets encompassing ultraviolet, visible and near-infrared wavelengths. That's from 0.3 to 2.5 micrometers. The observations were taken with the Near-Infrared Integral Field Spectrometer on the Gemini North Telescope on the summit of Mauna Kea in Hawaii. The authors also used archival data from NASA's Infrared Telescope facility, also located in Hawaii, and from the Hubble Space Telescope. But the Gemini North data was especially important as it was able to provide spectra, measurements of how bright an object is at different wavelengths for every point in its field of view. And this provided the authors with detailed measurements of how reflective both planets' atmospheres were across both the full disk of the planet and across a range of near-infrared wavelengths. The model also helps explain the dark spots, which are occasionally visible on Neptune but are less commonly detected on Uranus. While astronomers were already aware of the presence of dark spots in the atmospheres of both planets, they didn't know which aerosol layer was causing the dark spots, or why aerosols at these layers were less reflective. And so the team's research sheds light on these questions by showing that the darkening of the deepest layer in their model would produce dark spots similar to those seen on Neptune, perhaps also on Uranus. This is space-time. Still to come, a mysterious new type of magnetic wave discovered on the surface of the Earth's core. And later in the Science Report, a new study has found that having that morning cup of coffee could help you live longer. All that and more still to come on space-time. Scientists have discovered a mysterious new type of magnetic wave that sweeps across the outermost part of Earth's outer core every seven years. The findings, reported in the Journal of the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, are based on observations obtained by the European Space Agency's SWARM satellite mission. The trio of SWARM satellites were launched in 2013 to study the planet's magnetic field. Earth's magnetic field is important. It acts as a shield protecting life on the planet from the constant bombardment of deep space cosmic rays, as well as the relentless stream of charged particles raining down in the sun's solar wind. Were it not for Earth's magnetic field, the solar wind would erode the planet's atmosphere, it would degas the Earth's water into space, and it would irradiate the surface, making life impossible. In fact, that's exactly what happened on the red planet Mars when it lost its magnetic field. Most of Earth's magnetic field is generated by the planet's molten liquid metallic outer core, swirling around the solid iron inner core, producing a geodynamo which generates electrical currents and an electromagnetic field. The Swarm satellites measure the magnetic signals generated by Earth's core, as well as other signals that come from the planet's crust, its oceans, its ionosphere, and its magnetosphere. Scientists need to understand how the Earth's magnetic field is generated, why it constantly fluctuates, how it interacts with the solar wind, and why it appears to be weakening. In fact, there's an anomaly located in the South Atlantic Ocean where the polarity seems to have reversed – scientists don't fully understand what's going on. It's likely this could be a sign that Earth's magnetic field is about to flip, that is, the poles are about to reverse polarity. On the Sun, it's every 11 years. On Earth, it takes much longer, and we're already well overdue for the next flip. Now, in the past, life seems to have survived these magnetic pole reversals without too many problems, but the difference now is we have technology. We know that when solar storms from the sun overwhelm the Earth's magnetic field, they can disrupt communications and navigation systems, black out power grids, damage or even destroy spacecraft, shorten satellite lifespans and pose health issues not just for astronauts in orbit but also for people travelling in high-altitude aircraft. Because of that, scientists need to know what they can about the Earth's geodynamo. This newly discovered magnetic wave appears to be sweeping across the surface of the planet's outer core, right on the core-mantle boundary. It does so every seven years, oscillating and propagating westwards at up to 1,500 kilometres a year. Geophysicists have theorised over the existence of such waves, but they've always figured they'd run over much longer timescales. Previous measurements of the magnetic field from instruments based on the Earth's surface suggested that there was some kind of wave action taking place, but scientists really needed the global coverage offered by the Swarm satellites from space to reveal what's really going on. The authors combined the Swarm satellite measurements with data from earlier German CHAMP and Danish Osted measurements together with a computer model of the geodynamo in order to explain what the ground-based data was throwing up it seems Earth's rotation causes these waves to align in columns along the axis of rotation. And the motion and magnetic field changes associated with these waves are strongest near the equatorial region of the core. While the research exhibits magneto waves near a seven-year period, it doesn't explain why they'd be oscillating at different periods. The authors think the waves are likely to be triggered by disturbances deep within the Earth's liquid outer core, possibly related to buoyancy plumes. Each wave can be specified by its period and typical length scale, and the period depends on characteristics of the forces at play. For magnetocorollis waves, the period is indicative of the intensity of the magnetic field within the core. The findings suggest there could be more similar waves down there, waves which are yet to be discovered and which would have even longer periods. But it's going to take more research and more time to confirm such a hypothesis. This is Space Time. And time that to take a brief look at some of the other stories making news in science this week with a science report. A new study warns that far more Australian reptiles are facing extinction than previously thought. A report in the journal PLOS Biology shows that a large proportion of reptiles have been missed in previous assessments of extinction risks, and reptiles in Australia are among those most in peril. The authors developed a new learning tool that could assess the over 4,000 species of reptiles that were previously unable to be prioritised for conservation due to a lack of data. And they found species-rich groups, such as geckos, cobras, mambas, coral snakes and others, that are probably far more threatened than the global reptile assessment currently highlights. And these groups need to be the focus of more conservation attention. Scientists at the U.S. Department of Energy's National Renewable Energy Laboratory have created a new record-setting solar cell capable of achieving 39.5% efficiency. The new triple junction cells are more efficient and have a simpler design than existing solar panels. They do this by using a gallium-iridium-phosphide top junction, gallium-arsenide with quantum wells in the middle, and a bottom of lace-mismatched gallium-indium-arsenide. Side to say the new cells will be useful for a variety of new applications, such as low-radiation environment spacecraft, still achieving around 34.2% efficiency thanks to thick quantum well superlattices. By comparison, the best commonly used photovoltaic panels available today have around 22.8% efficiency. A new study has found that having a cup of coffee in the morning could help you live longer. Findings reported in the journals of the Annals of Internal Medicine show that drinking between one and a half and three and a half cups of coffee per day, either sweetened or unsweetened, could reduce your chances of dying over the seven-year period of follow-up observations. Now, the findings were less clear for people who were using artificial sweeteners. And accompanying editorial cautions, however, that while coffee has qualities which could make health benefits possible, there are also many variables in the study, like socioeconomic status and diet, which would make it harder to determine if it was the coffee which was the true cause of the reduced chances of death. Okay, time for what might well be the silliest story of the week. Despite a mountain of indisputable evidence proving that astrology is a swindle with no scientific backing, and the livelihood of people prognosticating it is dependent on the gullibility of stupid people, there are lots out there who keep pushing this pseudoscience in the hope of making money from the foolish. And now, as Tim Mindham from Australian Skeptics tells us, they have a new cookbook, fine-tuned to match the taste buds of your star sign.
1: A cookbook for astrology lovers. I mean, which he sort of talks about different recipes, that will suit different star signs. And of course, there are 12 different star signs, but they always leave out. Ophiuchus, which is the 13th star sign, but you can't divide 13 evenly. Well, even the 12 aren't divided correctly. That's exactly right. I mean, so I think it's one of them. is a liberal Scorpio. It's made it seven days long. But of course, it's allocated the usual 28 days or so on the sun sign astrology. That's what this is. It's sun sign astrology, which is the cheapest version of astrology you can get. Not that the others are that much better. But it always strikes me as interesting It's surely one Person on the end of a star sign is closer to the next star sign than to the early part of the star sign. It's just saying that certain foods will suit certain star signs, which is absolutely garbage. The astrology basis. Uh, so. So, what I loved was that they made the amazing comment that. Some of the world's best-known chefs are born under the sign of cancer. And my feeling is that's probably some of the worst. <laughs> also, born under the sign of cancer, some of the world's best-known chefs are probably born under every other star sign you can think of. The lack of intelligence these things, well, the lack of, of logic. Koreans have
0: sensitive taste buds. I can't believe, you know, fair enough.
1: <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, they didn't go through all the different star signs. I'm disappointed mine was left off.
0: Now, I'm Sagittarius, and it's to say that I like to try exotic things because I have a sense of daring and adventure. No, I don't <laughs> like exotic things. I, <laughs> I like very basic foods.
1: Well, that's probably, Stuart, because you're not Sagittarius. Yeah, you know, According of to course. the precession of the equinox, which your listeners will know fully well, means that all the star signs are shifting through the sky over a period of 25,000 years. So every 2,000 years or so, it shifts through a whole star sign. There's because same Babylonians. Those Babylonians down Babylonians, it just means that not only is astrology rubbish, the star signs aren't the same size, they miss out the 13th star sign, they're also not there anyway. You're not in the star sign you think you are, and you don't like exotic dishes full of spices and that sort of stuff. It's a wonderful extension of the total silliness, but it reinforces the belief that astrology is real, unfortunately.
0: Why are they always renowned or famous if you've never heard of
1: them? Well, I'm not going to say a complete loser of a psychic medium <laughs> no one's ever heard of has put out a book. I mean, if you look up Australian psychic Everyone is Australia's best psychic. They might use a little variation on the words, but you go through, look at a lot of the, especially the, the, the media profile ones, they're always the best, and you, you can't all be. Yeah.
0: It says here people who are allegedly born under the star sign of Libera tend to like sweet things, rich foods, sugary textures.
1: Yeah, I like sweet things, but I also like gourmet foods. and I, like, I don't mind exotic dishes. I don't mind a bit of spice and a bit of uh, chicken on my curry, is always, nice.
0: That's Tim from Australian Skeptics.